Constance. And I'm Lucinda. And together in our Kids Law podcast, we're looking at how laws affect children as we grow up. So what are we going to look at in this episode, Emma Constance? Well, in our previous episodes, we have talked about the role of laws in making our government work. When we spoke to Adam Wagner, we heard about the UK constitution and he talked about the constitutional monarchy. I would like to understand what this means and the role of the king in making and upholding laws. The year 2023 is a very special time to discuss this, as in the United Kingdom, we have had the coronation of a new monarch, King Charles III. A monarch is the name of a person who reigns over a kingdom or empire, and monarchy is the oldest form of government in the United Kingdom. You might also hear the terms the crown and sovereign used to describe a king or queen. As with many of the aspects we've discussed on this podcast, they have their origins back in history and have changed over the centuries and developed over time. Let's talk to Sir John Baker, an English legal historian who was the Downing Professor of the Laws of England at the University of Cambridge. Hello, Sir John. Thank you so much for joining us on our Kids Law podcast today. Could you please explain what is meant by the term constitutional monarchy? Hello, Alma. Well, monarchy is a Greek word meaning government by a single person. And in the beginning, monarchs had unlimited power, meaning that they made the laws and all the important decisions, and no one could challenge them. That's called absolute monarchy, though now we usually call it dictatorship or autocracy. But nowadays, most monarchies in the world are constitutional monarchies. And the important difference is that a constitutional monarch has limited power and rules according to laws which he or she can't change without the consent of the people. And we've had a constitutional monarchy here for a thousand years in the sense that monarchs promised at their coronations to rule according to law and were expected to do so, though sometimes in history the promises were broken. And a constitutional monarch is properly called the sovereign, meaning in law he is supreme, but it is the law which makes him king, and he himself is subject to the law. Most of us consider constitutional monarchy to be a better form of government than a presidency, such as you see in America or Russia, because it keeps the headship of state separate from the headship of government. The prime minister is head of government and has effective power for the time being, acting on behalf of the king, but he has no formal constitutional role himself and sometimes only holds office briefly. Whereas the monarchy is continuous, our late queen met more heads of state and heads of government throughout the world than anyone else has ever done in human history. No prime minister will ever achieve that. She had weekly meetings with a series of 15 prime ministers. Obviously, Charles III won't have such a long reign, but he already has long experience, and he provides continuity and constancy above the cut and thrust of politics. He's someone to whom prime ministers can have confidential chats without any fear of them being leaked, and is someone whom all citizens can serve loyally, whatever their political leanings. So that's rather different from a presidency. A lot of people have watched the series The Crown, the television drama series about the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. Could you please tell us what The Crown means? Well, The Crown is, of course, a beautiful and priceless piece of 17th century goldsmith's work with hundreds of precious jewels. 
which is placed on the head of the monarch at the coronation and then kept under armed guard in the Tower of London. But the crown with a capital C is also the name of an institution, something which you can't see or touch, but which is more important in practice than the symbol. And it has several slightly different meanings. It can mean the monarchy itself, as when we speak of the crown passing from Elizabeth II to Charles III. That's what it meant in the television series. But it also means all the functions which are carried on in the name of the king. The king's government is entrusted to the ministers of the crown, presided over by the prime minister. The country is defended by the armed forces of the crown. The law is applied and enforced in the king's courts by the king's judges. Money is issued by the crown and coins are stamped out at the royal mint. The crown owns property separate from that which the king owns personally, and it's run commercially as the crown estate, and it's huge. It includes, for instance, Regent Street in London, and most of the seacoast is said to be worth about £16 billion, but the income from rent goes to the national treasury, not to the king himself. I could list all sorts of other things connected with the crown, but it would take too long. But you might try looking out for crowns or royal coats of arms in everyday life, for instance, on pillar boxes or police officers' helmets, and consider why they're there. Incidentally, a differently designed drawing of the crown is made under each sovereign for official use as a symbol. It's not an exact copy of any real crown, but it represents the crown with a capital C. So what actual powers does King Charles III have? Well, Alma, you have to distinguish between the powers which the king exercises personally, that is where he has to make up his own mind whether to exercise them, and those which he exercises only on the advice of a minister when he has to do what he's asked. King has to sign many documents which are put in front of him every day. For instance, when a peer or a judge is appointed, the king has to sign a warrant ordering the Lord Chancellor to put the king's seal on a document. But the decision to make the appointment is not the king's. And the same is true of commissioning officers in the armed forces, of which the king is commander-in-chief, and so on. As for the prime minister, when I was younger, the queen did have to decide who the prime minister was, and it could be quite awkward. She had to have interviews with uh, likely candidates. But now it's been arranged that parties will produce a name for the monarch to agree upon, so the king doesn't have to decide anything. He also has to give his assent to all acts of parliament before they can become law. Treaties with other countries are entered into in the name of the king, and a declaration of war or peace can only be made by the king's proclamation. Centuries ago, all these powers were exercised by the king in person, though even then it was sensible to take advice from people before making a decision. But now, by a strong convention, though it's not strict law, the king only does such things when he's asked to do so by his ministers. And so constitutional monarchy today is even more limited than in the past. And the result is that there are very few powers which remain in the king personally, even honours which the king or other members of the royal family bestow at investitures are mostly decided on by others and recommended to the king by the prime minister. Can you tell us more about the role of the monarch and lawmaking? 
the main lawmaking body, as you know, is Parliament, consisting of the King, the House of Lords, and the House of Commons. And only the King can summon or dissolve a Parliament, though it isn't his decision. Dissolving Parliament means that it closes down for a time, and all the MPs stop being MPs, and that causes a general election. And so it is a political decision made by the Prime Minister. But the King may prorogue a Parliament for a short time. That means that it stops its work for a time, but without being dissolved. The former Prime Minister Boris Johnson advised the late Queen to prorogue Parliament in 2019, when the Commons seemed to be in difficulties. But the Supreme Court, in a controversial decision, held that the prorogation was unlawful because it interfered with the proper business of Parliament. So the King's role in these matters is very limited, and he doesn't make the decisions himself. At the beginning of every session of Parliament, the King turns up personally in the House of Lords with much ceremony, which you can watch on television, and he reads out the King's speech. And this speech sets out the government's programme for changes to be made in the law during the coming Parliament. It's written by the Prime Minister and his advisers, but the King has to read out what he's given. It must be sometimes awkward for him if he doesn't agree with it privately, but what he reads out is what his government proposes to do, not what he himself thinks. Changes in the law are made by statutes, which we call Acts of Parliament. And if a proposed statute is approved by both houses, it becomes law when it receives the royal assent, which means that the king agrees to it. But in reality, the king doesn't have any say in the matter. The last monarch who refused to give royal assent to a statute was Queen Anne in 1708. And nowadays, the king appoints a commission of three lords to report his assent to the House of Lords. And it's simply a ceremony. But it, it's an interesting ceremony because it has the last survival of medieval French. Because when the title of each statute is read out, the clerk says, le roi le veut, the king wills it. And he must will it, even if he doesn't like it. Does King Charles have to obey the law? Yes, he does. The king at his coronation took an oath to govern the people of the United Kingdom and other possessions of the crown according to their respective laws and customs, and to cause law and justice in mercy in all his judgments. That's very old wording, because it seems to suppose that the king still governs and gives judgments himself. I've already said that he doesn't do so in person anymore, but the meaning of the oath is that the king will rule in accordance with law, through his ministers and judges. In, in theory, the king could, and I think should, remove a prime minister who was breaking the law and refusing to obey the judgments of the courts or, or parliament. And the, the fact that it never needs to be done shows just how well it works, because it's an important feature of constitutional monarchy that the politicians who govern the country have someone above them to whom they are, in theory, answerable. But uh, although the king is sworn to uphold the law, he can't be prosecuted or sued in his own courts. And until 1947, this meant that the king's government couldn't be sued either, which was a serious problem. But a statute called the Crown Proceedings Act was passed in that year, which changed that. And it's now very common for ministries to be sued in the high court. So the immunity only means that the king can't be personally sued or prosecuted for a crime. I'm sure that if a future monarch abused the privilege by going around committing crimes, Parliament would change the law and make the king liable. 
But our monarchs are, are law-abiding people, and it hasn't been a problem in modern times. But what happens if the king actually does break the law? What happens then? Because if you can't be sued and stuff, well, then how does Parliament agree on what happens to him or her? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. Of course, since everything is done on the king's behalf by other people, by ministers, for instance, if they break the law, they can be sued in the courts, and so it can be challenged. As I've said, the king has very few powers remaining now, so that the question only really arises if he does something privately wrong. He, he got involved in a motoring accident or something like that, and then there wouldn't be anything that could be done. There was a big fuss over the Duke of Edinburgh who got involved in a motoring accident, but it's only the queen or the king who has the immunity, so he didn't have it, but it was all settled in the end, and he apologised and paid damages. If it came to the case where the king was refusing to give his consent to an act of parliament, then there would, I think, be a serious constitutional crisis in the country, and it's difficult to say where that would go. It's the sort of thing that we hope won't happen. And I think it could only conceivably happen if the prime minister was acting illegally, but that, that would be a very serious problem. So does the king actually play a part in the legal system these days? He does, but in a formal sense. He appoints all the judges, though they are chosen by committees. He also appoints the law officers of the crown, called the attorney general and solicitor general. Historically, the king's council, KCs, were also legal advisors to the crown. And they're still sworn to serve the king, but in practice, it's a professional rank or title with no public duties. The courts of law are the king's courts. And in most courtrooms, you can see the royal arms above the judge's chair. And one branch of the high court is called the king's bench division, a court which in medieval times was held before the king himself. And one of its most important roles is to deal with challenges to government decisions a procedure called judicial review. Does the monarch ever get involved in criminal cases? Not personally, no. But serious prosecutions in criminal cases are brought in the name of the king. And the formal title of a serious criminal case is the king against X, which is written as RVX, which is an abbreviation of the Latin Rex versus X. And in the old days, criminal offences were said to be against the peace of our Lord the King. Prisons are the kings, and persons who are sentenced to indefinite terms of imprisonment are ordered to be held at His Majesty's pleasure, though in fact it will be the decision of the minister whether to let them out. The, the king's main practical involvement in theory is that he can pardon a convicted person. He can't overturn a conviction, only a court can do that, but he can occasionally show mercy, as promised in his coronation oath, by pardoning the punishment. But it's no longer the king's personal decision like everything else. It's only exercised on advice. And there are now so many avenues of appeal through the courts against wrong convictions that it's very rarely needed nowadays. It has occasionally been used to express disquiet at historic convictions thought to be wrong, such as that of Derek Bentley, who was hanged for murder in 1953 aged 19, and pardoned in 1993. Oddly, the pardon could only apply to the death penalty. It was rather too late to save Mr. Bentley, though it removed the stigma posthumously. What happens if the king or queen is a child? Does it change their role? 
And has this happened in the past? Well, it hasn't happened very often. But if the heir to the throne is a child, he or she will become king or queen immediately. According to the old law, a king could not be legally under age and couldn't therefore even have a guardian. But he obviously couldn't make important decisions if he was very small. King Henry VI was only nine months old when he became king in 1422, so he couldn't even have scribbled his name on a document. There had to be a regency council to do the king's work. Edward V was 13 in 1483 when he was king for two months, but I'm afraid he was murdered in the Tower of London before he was even crowned. The last time a child became monarch in England was in 1547 when Henry VIII died, and his son Edward VI was aged nine, and Henry laid down in his will that there should be a Regency Council whose decisions Edward should obey until he was 18. But we know that the boy king attended the council meetings himself, and he was apparently quite forceful in expressing his opinions, but he died when he was 15. There hasn't yet been an infant king or queen of the United Kingdom, but in 1937, a Regency Act was passed by Parliament because the heir to the throne at that time, Princess Elizabeth, was only 10. And this act provides that when the sovereign is under 18, the royal functions will be performed by a regent, who will be the person next in line to the throne who isn't under age. In 1937, it would have been Elizabeth's uncle, the Duke of Gloucester. And the regent will also act as guardian, unless the sovereign's mother is living, in which case she will be the guardian. The act hasn't yet been needed because Elizabeth II was 25 when her father died, and Charles III was 73 when she died. I have a question I ask all of our guests. What were you like at 10, and what did you imagine you'd go on to be as an adult? Well, I can't remember what I was like when I was 10. It was a very long time ago. But when I wasn't at my primary school, I was probably playing with friends or studying insects in the garden or something. There were no computers in those days, let alone the internet. And in our spare time, we had to amuse ourselves with books or playing with friends or taking in the immediate world around us. But my most vivid early memory is of Elizabeth II's coronation when I was nine. Before 1953, only rich people had televisions, but the makers of televisions realized they could make a lot of money from the coronation by selling them more cheaply. So thousands of televisions were bought, and we entered the TV age. So we were able to watch the coronation at home in black and white, and it seemed amazing. In 1953, I also went to a coronation exhibition of heraldry, and I was fascinated by the colourful coats of arms and the wax seals and the old documents. I didn't know it then, but old manuscripts were going to be an important part of my life later. In fact, I had no idea at that age what I wanted to do as an adult. I don't suppose I even thought about it. I studied science for my A-levels, and I didn't even think of studying law until I was 17. Thank you so much, Sir John, for coming on our podcast and telling us about the role of the monarchy in the legal system. Do you have any final advice for children who want to understand more about the issues you've discussed today? Well, there are lots of books on the British Constitution and the English legal system aimed at older people. You can find some helpful non-technical information on the Parliament website, learning.parliament.uk. 
and there's a royal family website, royal.uk. And of course, there's a lot more information available on the internet, but you have to be careful about using it. Uh, when you read a printed book or an e-book, it will have been checked by experts. That doesn't necessarily mean it will be right, but it's more likely to be reliable than material which has been posted on the internet without much thought or knowledge. Now, much of what you find, for instance, on Wikipedia is excellent, and it's been more widely checked and corrected than any book. But there's a great deal of seriously misleading information on the internet, and you have to learn how to evaluate online information, some of which is incorrect. It's, it's very important to understand that, and that's the best advice I can end with. That's brilliant, and thank you so much yeah, thank you for coming. Really, really interesting, and we so value your time. Well, Alma, what do you think about what Sir John told us? Sir John explained that a constitutional monarchy is not the same as an absolute monarchy. This means the king or queen don't have complete power over everything. The monarch has to rule according to the laws of the country. He also added that the monarchy's powers are usually delegated or given to others, such as ministers. Although other royal family members can be prosecuted, the king cannot be as head of state. That's right. And Sir John also told us that each new monarch is given a new symbol of the crown and that we can look out for these crowns on places like post boxes and on police uniforms. In our podcast, we've been exploring how laws work and affect young people. All of these things can help children understand their rights and responsibilities so they can make informed decisions, not only about their lives, but also about voting for MPs who make the laws and understanding how the legal justice system works. It's also important that children know that it should be kept safe and that adults must care for them. Remember, if you have any worries, talk to an adult you trust and tell them how you feel. This includes your teachers at school who are there to look after you too. So tell them that you need to talk to them. Keep your questions coming in. Please subscribe, rate and share the podcast with your friends. See you soon in the next episode. Bye.